This episode of The Way Home Podcast is brought to you by Relentless, Gospel Courage in a Complex Culture, a special pre-conference hosted by the ERLC and the Gospel Coalition at the 2017 TGC Conference. Find out more at erlc.com slash events. I met a little girl in Jordan named Haya. She was 10 years old. Um, her father was killed, and she wrote me a letter, which I still carry with me. And here's an excerpt from the letter. Uh, she said, Peace to you. I am talking on behalf of Syrian children. I'm calling on you, the people of the other world. Have you ever thought of Syria? Have you ever thought of the children of Syria, my country, Syria? She said, My name is Haya, and my father was killed. I want to go back to Syria. I loved my father so much but now I'll never see him again. It's a little girl, 10 years old, and it just broke my heart. How does the CEO of a fine luxury goods company end up among some of the world's poorest populations and serving the most vulnerable? That is the unusual career trajectory of Rich Stearns, the president and CEO of World Vision. World Vision is one of the world's largest nonprofit humanitarian organizations with a presence in over 100 countries. Rich has personally traveled to over 40 of these countries. He's appeared on television and in the nation's leading publications advocating for the most vulnerable. Most importantly, he leads World Vision out of a deep commitment and love for the gospel. Today, Rich will share with me what motivated him to make that major life decision several decades ago how gospel proclamation and good works actually go together, and what inspires him about the work of the church around the world. So join my conversation right now with World Vision President Rich Stearns. Rich Stearns, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's great to be with you, Dan. There's a lot of things we could talk about, of course, that are in the news and just some of the things that World Vision is involved with. And I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with World Vision and, and probably work with World Vision uh, in their church or an individual level uh, and are grateful for the work that you do. But I, I guess I want to step back before we talk about some of that work and maybe talk a little about your own journey into this work. I know you were um, in the corporate world uh, for a while and uh, mm-hmm. just God put this burden on your heart to, to work in the nonprofit and NGO space. Can you talk a little bit about what God did in your heart? Sure. You know, as a kid growing up, you know, I, I kind of look back and realize that I always felt like an underdog. My uh, my parents never went to uh, high school. Um, you know, there were no college graduates in mm-hmm. my family. Our family broke up with a divorce and alcoholism, and, and it was just not a great uh, environment. But through God's grace, I was able to, you know, go to college and uh, managed to get through two different Ivy League schools on scholarships and loans and work and, you know, hustling and all of that, and uh, really became a Christian in graduate school uh, through my wife, uh, who led me to the Lord uh, while we were dating. Uh, so anyways, I think I've always had a heart for the underdog, because that was a little bit of my experience. But let me fast forward. You know, I had a really interesting corporate career. I was the CEO of Parker Brothers Games uh, in my 30s and, uh, you know, Monopoly Clue and Sorry, and uh, we did some video games as well. And then 
my next assignment was with Lennox Fine China and Crystal, of all things, uh, luxury goods and tableware. And I was at Lennox for about 11 years. I was CEO there. And it was in 1998 that uh, an executive recruiter called me, and uh, he was representing World Vision. And he basically asked me the question, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? And of course, I wasn't really excited about leaving my American dream corporate career and taking a huge pay cut and going to work full-time for a nonprofit. But through that journey with uh, World Vision and that process of interviewing and discussing the possibilities, it became very clear to me that God was calling me to this work, uh, to work for uh, an organization that helped all of the underdogs around the world, the poorest of the poor. And so in 1998, uh, my wife and I sold our house. Uh, I quit my CEO job and turned in my corporate Jaguar to the company, and we moved our five kids to uh, Seattle, Washington from, um, from Pennsylvania, where we were living at the time. And 60 days later, I was in uh, the jungles of Uganda uh, at ground zero of the AIDS pandemic, uh, learning about what it meant to be an orphan, an AIDS orphan in a child-headed household when both of your parents have died and you're mm. just living as a group of children without any adults in your life. And God just broke my heart on that trip, and I've been doing it ever since. So that's the short story of my life. That, that, that is amazing. You know, it, as you're telling that, I think it's ironic that you were you know, CEO of a company that, of companies that deal with luxury goods, and now you're you're, you're president of, uh, of an organization that asks people to give up luxury goods to, to help the, the less fortunate. So it's amazing how God works that way. I think most people understand what World Vision does, but maybe doesn't understand the scope of of your ministry. Uh, you know, I've had a chance to travel a little bit overseas, and it's amazing how many countries uh, World Vision is in and doing the kinds of work that is really difficult uh, work uh, among the vulnerable. So if you could just kind of maybe describe the scope of, of, of what uh, World Vision does. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think our motivating vision at World Vision is to combine the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. So the Great Commission is to go into all the nations and make disciples for Christ. And the Great Commandment is about loving our neighbors as ourselves, uh, the second greatest commandment in, from Matthew 22. And so when you love people and you care about their physical situation, if they're hungry, if they're sick, if they're thirsty, mm-hmm. um, if they're refugees, strangers, uh, it gives you the right, it, you earn the right to speak into their lives about what motivates you. And the answer is the gospel. It's mm-hmm. the good news of Jesus Christ that God did so much for me that I care about you. And so the Great Commission and the Great Commandment are kind of the motivating uh, biblical principles for us. And uh, you're right, uh, God has prospered World Vision. We were founded in 1950 by one man, Dr. Bob Pierce, mm-hmm. who um, had little training and experience, but he had been to Korea during the war and saw the suffering of widows and orphans and uh, amputees and all of the things that are the horrors of war. It was a refugee crisis, right, uh, mm-hmm. in 1950. And uh, he came back to the U.S. and uh, instead of calling the organization Korea Vision, this amazing man said, no, I'm going to call it World Vision, because I believe God has a different vision for the world mm-hmm. than this. And now, 66 years later, we're in about 100 countries with 45,000 full-time employees, wow. and uh, 
We estimate that our ministry touches about 100 million people every year. And we do a wide variety of things. It's hard to describe it in a sentence, but we do clean water and sanitation. Uh, We're the number one provider of clean water in the world uh, to rural villages uh, in Africa and other parts of the world. We we do maternal and child health and safe childbirth and midwife training. And uh, we educate mothers about nutrition and how to raise children that are healthy. We we do economic development, and we have a billion-dollar revolving loan fund where we give mm-hmm. micro-loans to entrepreneurs and smallholder farmers, and we teach them how to create an income for their families and, and, and uh, create some prosperity for their community. We do education, um, making sure that kids get an education and they stay in school longer, yeah, as long as they possibly can. Um, so, you know, food, water, health, mm-hmm. economic development, education, uh, we touch on all of those things. And, of course, the last thing I'd mention would be emergency relief, disaster mm-hmm. relief, hurricanes, earthquakes, civil wars, refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, World Vision is always one of the first on the scene in, um, in, in natural disasters and catastrophes. And one of the things you said recently is that the Great Commission without compassion lacks power, but the Great Commandment without the good news of the gospel saves only bodies and not souls. And so... Can you talk a little bit about how we need both of those two things together? Uh, sometimes it seems like Christians are pulled to one side or the other, uh, gospel proclamation versus uh, gospel works and deeds. And so maybe talk about how those thing, two things need to live together. Well, you know, the Church has suffered for centuries uh, over this false dichotomy. You know, are you an evangelist uh, who is out there to save souls, or are you a social activist that's just out there to help people mm-hmm. with their uh, you know, social problems and, and, and material problems. And it's a false dichotomy because Jesus did both. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus was the one who talked about, you know, healing the sick and caring for the poor and, and standing up for justice for the downtrodden. And he was always demonstrating in very tangible ways his compassion. You know, he healed the blind and he uh, healed the sick and, you know, he touched the leper and you know, he associated with the poorest, most outcast people in the society uh, that he was born into. And he also preached the good news and told people about a new way to live with your sins forgiven, reconciling humankind with God. And, uh, you know, I think of it this way, Dan, once we are reconciled vertically with God, our sins forgiven by mm-hmm. the cross, and we experience God's favor and God's adoption as children, that enables us to reconcile our horizontal relationships mm-hmm. between husband and wife, neighbor and neighbor, parent and child, tribe and tribe, you know. And mm-hmm. so the power of the gospel for the poor is that it's a ministry of reconciliation that we see in Second Corinthians 5, that a lot of poverty is uh, between our ears, you know, for poor communities. There, there's spiritual and emotional uh, poverty that it's more than just a lack of food, a lack of mm-hmm. water, um, you know, a lack of education. Mm-hmm. It's also a poverty of spirit. And uh, World Vision likes to address both of those things simultaneously because, uh, yeah, we can drill a water well and bring clean water out of the ground, and that helps people and it changes their lives. But the true human transformation that we seek is uh, is both spir- spiritual and physical and economic, and mm-hmm. 
in all spheres of their lives, you know, so that they 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 are reborn people and reborn communities. I mean, that would be our vision. Some of the language that you talk about, uh, which I think is really good, is just uh, speaking about human dignity and how um, the work that you do and the work that you know Christians are called to do when they stand up for the vulnerable is to fight for dignity for those that are oppressed or that we're tempted to to not see or to not see their humanity. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think. So much of the work we do is to, um, number one, we want to build a bridge between American Americans who are giving, right, our child sponsors, mm-hmm. our high net worth donors, Americans who are giving. We want to build a bridge between them and people that are very culturally and economically different than them. They might be racially different. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say they live in Africa. They're poor. Uh, they may be uh, they may be Muslim people that we're helping in Africa, so they're 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 different from their religious worldview as well. And we we want to build a bridge between these two peoples uh, so that we see the humanity in the people over there, uh, and then they see the humanity in those of us over here that are reaching out and. Uh, I, I talk about a bridge, and we call it a bridge of transformation, because if you've ever been on one of those cross-cultural trips with uh, to see the kind of work that an organization like World Vision does, you, you come back and you say, it changed me. It, you know, it was a life-changing experience for me as a Western Christian. And, of course, we hope it's transformational for the people on the other side of the bridge as well. And it builds bridges of understanding, uh, Bridge, bridges of appreciation. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our frustrations right now is the the refugee crisis mm-hmm. in the Middle East, and we have so many stereotypes of uh, Middle Eastern Muslim refugees that it gets in the way of our seeing their humanity. Mm-hmm. And of course, I've been over there multiple times to meet uh, refugees in these little tents they live in, and I've met the mothers, the fathers, the grandmothers, the children. I often tell Americans the face of the refugee is a child. Uh, More than half of the refugees from Syria are children, and 80% are women, children, and the elderly. And we try to get people to see that, that these are people made in the image of God that Mm -hmm. Christ died for, and we need to demonstrate compassion to them and give them dignity back. You know, it started with dignity here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've lost all of their dignity. Uh, they're the most unwelcome, unwanted, unloved people on the planet right now. They've lost their homes. They've mm-hmm. lost loved ones. They've lost their nation. Uh, they've lost their culture, and and they're and they're living in tents. Mm-hmm. So we try to help them uh, restore some dignity in their lives by coming alongside them in their exile and in their time of need. And just to be clear, you know, we don't do refugee resettlement in the United States. We help them right where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and my experience is almost all of them want to go home someday. Mm-hmm. They don't want to come here or Canada or Europe. Some of them that are, you know, maybe need asylum because they're in danger will, will, will not be able to go home, but the majority of them want to go home and rebuild their lives. You know, I wanted to ask you about that because um, I've heard you speak on this before and um, just speak to the the scope and scale of the refugee crisis um, and how many people are displaced at this, you know, it's really a record in terms of modern history, isn't it, uh, in terms of how many people are displaced. Can you, you've traveled to some of these places, and you've, you've seen firsthand um, yeah. the plight of, of, of people who are displaced. Can you, can you speak to this, to what's going on? Yeah, I, again, I, I don't think uh, most of us in America have a real understanding of the, the scope and the scale of this. And 
there are more refugees today, displaced people and refugees, than at any time since World War II, uh, over 65 million people. But let's just focus on Syria for a minute. Syria and Iraq, two countries that have generated a lot of refugees and internally displaced people, about 15 million people are displaced from Iraq and Syria. And when I speak to American audiences, I ask them to imagine this. Uh, I want you to imagine that every man, woman, and child, elderly, you know, infants, people in nursing homes, people in hospitals, every person in the following American cities suddenly had to flee for their lives, literally pull the IVs out of their arms and have people carry them out of the hospitals and clinics or nursing homes in the following cities. Uh, San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Albuquerque, Austin, Jacksonville, San Francisco, Indianapolis, Columbus, Fort Worth, Charlotte, Detroit, Denver, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Boston, Nashville, Baltimore, and Seattle. Mm -hmm. The total population of those cities is 15 million people, and that's, that's what the refugee crisis represents in Syria and Iraq. And most Americans, you know, the lights go on when I read that list of cities and they say, I had no idea. I had no idea that it was that profound and that big. And so many people were suffering. You know, most of us are not good with big numbers. You know, 15 million is just a big number. And uh, so when you read a list of cities like that, you say, if that happened in the United States, it would be a catastrophe uh, of the highest order. And that's what's happened in Syria and Iraq. You know, we were talking with our well, our kids either, my wife and I, and just talking about what it is to be a refugee and just saying, imagine like, you know, tomorrow we have to pack a few things that we have and, you know, try to find a place to go live and someone who will take us. And I think there's a sense, um, the number's so staggering, it's on the other side of the world, and it seems like it's very easy for us to not see the humanity in each one of these mm-hmm. people who are displaced. You know, I, I want to tell two quick little stories. So I was in uh, northern Iraq, Erbil, um, last year. And when Mosul fell to ISIS, the city of Mosul, a city of about 2 million people, ISIS came in in 2014. And there were a number of Christian communities in Mosul. And they told the Christians, you have three choices, either leave immediately, convert to Islam, or die. Mm. And of course, they chose leaving immediately, and they fled with literally the clothes on their backs to uh, Erbil, which is in the Kurdish region of Iraq, and they could find safety in Kurdistan. And, uh, you know, I heard one of the family stories, I heard many stories, but, you know, one family were gathered there in their little tent and uh, were telling their story. And the young man who was, uh, he was there with his parents, he said, my mother would not leave our home until she had cleaned the house and fed the goldfish. After she did that, she said, now we can leave, but I'm not leaving a messy house and we're going to feed the goldfish. Well, almost any American woman can relate to that, you know, uh, that sense of, yeah, I want to leave my house in order because that's who I am as a person. And just, it just made me see them as they're, they're so much like us, you know, that they, they had homes, they had lives, uh, they had order in their lives and they had to leave everything and flee. And the other story I tell uh, was my first encounter with the refugees. I met a little girl in Jordan named Haya. She was 10 years old. Um, her father was killed, and she wrote me a letter, which I still carry with me. And here's an excerpt from the letter. Uh, she said, Peace to you. I am talking on behalf of Syrian children. I'm calling on you, the people of the other world, 
Mm. Have you ever thought of Syria? Have you ever thought of the children of Syria, my country, Syria? She said, my name is Haya, and my father was killed. Mm. I want to go back to Syria. I loved my father so much, but now I'll never see him again. Mm. It's a little girl, 10 years old, and it just broke my heart to hear that story. And you can multiply that story times millions of little girls, little boys, whose lives and even loved ones have been torn from them. And the reason I carry Haya's letter around is I never want to forget that child. Um, I never want to forget her because for me, she will always be the face of the Syrian refugees that I, that I advocate for. Every day it seems we're overwhelmed with news that scrolls across our timelines. How do we react? How do we talk about it with our kids? What should the church do? Join us at a special ERLC pre-conference at the 2017 Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. This special pre-conference will feature Russell Moore, Jen Wilkin, Crawford Loritz, Nancy Guthrie, Kevin DeYoung, Jackie Hill Perry, Sam Albury, and many others. Check out the link at ERLC.com events. Get your ticket now for $25 and get an extra $5 off if you use the coupon code WAYHOME. That's WAYHOME in all caps. We'd love to see you in Indianapolis. seems like so easy for us to, particularly for in America, uh, to forget just the plight of, of what's going on here. But it also seems like there's a great opportunity here for the church around the world to really uh, press into this suffering and uh, mm-hmm. as an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. Uh, but there's also a, a sense of fear among you know, Christians here in America and in Western countries, uh, fear of terrorism, fear of fear of you know kind of losing a national identity. It seems those two things are in conflict. Well, how do you speak to that? Well, you're you're absolutely right, and I think our our political and national narrative right now is a narrative of fear, and and I certainly understand the fear of the other, the fear of terrorism, the fear of strangers. That uh, you know we've seen some brutal attacks in the U.S., you know, San Bernardino and Orlando. And they were certainly motivated by Islamic extremism, but they were carried out by American-born citizens, uh, not by refugees. And it's important to remember that the refugees are fleeing from that violence. You know, they, more than anybody, uh, understand the violence of extreme terrorism because they've suffered from it, and that's why they're running, because they're being bombed and shelled and shot and uh, killed and beheaded and all of the things that are just horrific that we see. So, you know, as Christians, though, um, I, I always try to remind Christians of a couple things. You know, first of all, Jesus was so clear, uh, we're to welcome the stranger. And you go back to Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. The, one of the themes that was really quite contrarian at the time is the, the people of Israel were always told to be kind and welcome the stranger and the alien in their midst, which uh, was very countercultural uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, you know, in, in, in the world as it existed then. And the other thing to remember is that there's nowhere in Scripture where Jesus told us, never take a risk for your faith, never take a risk for your faith. 
if the disciples had not taken a risk for the Christian faith, none of us would be here as Christians mm-hmm. today. But they all were bold and um, courageous, and uh, 11 of the 12 disciples actually died as martyrs uh, to the faith, and John the 12th uh, died in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And so we've got to be willing to take reasonable risks as uh, followers of Christ for to live out the, the values that he left us. And, and I'm not saying we should take any reckless risks uh, with our faith. And one of the things I've said to church leaders is the government's job is to protect its citizens, and the church's job is to care for broken people and to demonstrate the love of Christ. Let's let the government do its job, and let's let the church be the church. And um, so we have to live with those two different institutions, right? One has mm-hmm. a different mission than uh, the church does, and uh, and that's okay. Um, but I think as Christians, we need to be those voices of reconciliation and compassion. And And just last point, Dan, this is a once-in-a-lifetime, maybe once-in-a-hundred-year opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ to demonstrate the gospel in action in the bullseye of the Islamic world in the Middle East. Um, what an opportunity mm-hmm. to show our love and the love of Christ to hurting people in that part of the world. And, uh, and that's what World Vision is trying to do. We're working in all five of the most affected countries, and of course we do our work in the name of Jesus. And we're just trying to show people kindness and love. Uh, we care about you. We, we care about you and your, and your family in your hour of need, and we're here to help. And those words are like... Um, you know, imagine hearing those words if you're unloved, unwelcome, and unwanted. Mm, and here's an organization of Christians that says, we love you, we care about you, we're here for you. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, I think there's a kind of a caricature of, of evangelical Christians that, that sometimes we, you know, we, we live out, unfortunately. But it's amazing to me just the number of Christians who are risking a lot around the world to to help really help the vulnerable people who work for your your organization and other organizations. If you could, I, I just, you know, final question. I've heard you speak on this before, and I think it's really important, but connecting our work of compassion in, in these areas with, uh, I, I think a lot of times people will pit security against uh, compassion, and, and really it seems like the work of compassion that you do really actually has long-term benefits in terms of fighting terrorism and, and providing security. Well, absolutely. And, you know, there's a big debate going on right now in our country about uh, international foreign assistance, and mm-hmm. should that be on the chopping block, and should it be greatly reduced? And most Americans, when you ask them how much of the American tax dollar uh, goes to foreign assistance uh, programs abroad, they'll answer 20, 25 percent, and they're angry about that. Why are we giving so much to other countries and not taking care of our own. The the actual truth is that foreign assistance is about one half of one percent of the federal budget. And our entire diplomatic corps, including embassies and USAID and all foreign assistance, is about one percent. So it's a tiny hmm. portion of our budget. But these kinds of acts of compassion around the world, both for the church and for the U.S. government, really promote peace and friendship and mutual understanding and, and, and compassion it demonstrates to the world, uh, you know, our Christian values and hopefully our American values, which have a lot of things in common with our Christian values, that we care about people, we care about freedom and liberty and freedom of religion, and and we want to be a helping hand to uh, countries that are struggling 
and we want to be friends with those countries. You know, we don't want to go to war with anybody. We want to be uh, the hand of friendship around the world. And so these, this work that the church is doing and, and that our government is doing through foreign assistance programs uh, is tremendous in, in helping, you know, uh, countries where there are plenty of jobs and a growing economy uh, and, uh, you know, there's opportunities for young men to get training and education. You know, those are countries far less likely to become radicalized or violent. And, uh, and those young men have something to live for because they've got an income, they can get married and support a family. And so all of these programs promote security, safety, and better international relationships uh, for us around the world. And uh, so even if you didn't have a compassionate bone in your body, there's a lot of arguments from self-interest about why these uh, why this work matters, because it makes it for a better, safer world. Mm-hmm. That's really good. It's, it's a great way to end our conversation. Uh, Rich Stearns, uh, President and CEO of World Vision, we're grateful for the work that you're doing uh, around the world and, and for what, what God is doing through your ministry. And uh, thank you for joining me today on the Way Home Podcast. Well, thanks, Dan. And people can find out more at our website at worldvision.org if they want to learn more about this work. Yeah, and we'll put a link up there uh, as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.